Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Boxing One Podcast. It's a beautiful Tuesday afternoon where I'm at recording right now in Baltimore. And I've got my sage mentor on the podcast today. Dan Favalli joins us to do an Eastern Conference kind of playoff preview because college basketball season is now officially in the rearview mirror. So as we turn the page, we're talking draft and prospects, but we're also talking NBA because the playoffs are really a week away now, and there's still a lot of movement that can happen both in the West and the Eastern Conference. Dan, my friend, it's so good to see you. How have you been? I am doing spectacular and even better after that introduction. Too kind as always. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, a weird time of year for me right now, just work-wise. Like School has a lot of dress down days or weird things in the calendar, four-day weekend coming up. Like There's no rhythm in my life at all. But it just means that there's more room for those, you know, 4.30 a.m. Jalen Slauson film sessions that everybody comes to love. So uh, it is what it is, man. Uh, I'm really excited to dive into the Eastern Conference today. Last week, Matt Issa came on the pod and we did a, a similar preview for the Western Conference, which is much more uh, messy, so to speak, because there are a million teams still in the mix and vying for the play-in for the playoffs and on the outside looking in. Today in the East, it's much more cut and dry, but I want to do a deeper dive into each of those teams to see their viability of really winning a first-round series. But Dan, before we get there, I got to give my one pregame speech. It's that one spiel, something that I got to get off my chest. And as I'm really turning the page into draft season, this is the time when I start to fall in love with a lot of prospects. I don't know if people know this about me, but I am 5'11 and horribly unathletic. So I tend to fall in love with smaller guards who are incredibly smart and savvy and make the right play for their team happen every every single time down the floor. But what I've realized is that in the current NBA, there are only so many spots left for guards. The league is trending larger right now. There's so much more going on about positional size, and, and that's more about the impact that positional size has on the defensive end of the floor. Combine that with what we've seen over the last decade in AAU and in skill development at younger ages, where bigger guys who have length aren't just jettisoned to the block and told to be back to the basket players. They're taught real perimeter skill at a young age. And because of that, they end up being so much more skilled when they're 18, 19, 20 years old and ready to come into the league. So the result of all of that, is that guys like Judah Mintz, Mike Miles from TCU, Marcus Sasser at Houston, or to a certain extent, guys like Nick Smith, Terquavion Smith, Kobe Bufkin, Trey Alexander, like 6'4"-ish combo guard scorers. There's just so many spots for them remaining. So as I'm diving back into the film and many draft heads are are falling in love with some of these guys and saying, this is going to be the one guard, that one guy that makes it, you got to realize how damn good you have to be in order to, to overcome some of these trends. I like so many of them that I just mentioned individually, but it's going to be really hard to justify ranking them ahead of some of the really young, talented wings who just fit the way that the game is trending a little bit better. So, Dan, with that said, let's go to the Eastern Conference playoffs here. We're going to really skip the the top teams in the East right now. I think that the, the first five have all clinched their playoff spots. Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia are kind of in that top upper echelon tier. Cleveland and the Knicks seemingly locked in that 4-5 battle. But then things start to get a little bit different here. So the rules of how the podcast is going to work today, 
We're going to put five minutes on the timer here. And once my trusty cell phone radar noise goes off, I'm going to ask Dan one question that's on my mind about each team and what they're going to have to do to put their imprint on this postseason race. Dan, are you ready to go? I am ready. All right. So let's start right now at the top of the standings, five minutes on the clock. And as we hit go here, we're going to dive into the Brooklyn Nets, 43 and 35 at the time we're recording this two games up on the Miami Heat for that number six spot with four games to play. And that sixth spot is really important because it avoids the play-in entirely. They host the sliding, streaking, sliding again, Minnesota Timberwolves tonight, and then they finish with their final three games at Detroit versus Orlando and then at Philadelphia. It's a pretty good schedule for them. Sets up well to save that succeed with a two-game advantage. Mikhail Bridges is making a star turn, man. They shoot and they space the floor around him. Claxton and Dorian Finney-Smith locked down the front court and are really good defenders. Like, What are your impressions of this team post-deadline? They've been 9-11 and 11 in games that they've played after all of these trades. What, Where are you at with the Nets right now? I don't really know what to think of them other than, wow, Mikael Bridges is really good. I think that their defense, I think, can be fine. If we're trying to scale ahead to a playoff matchup, I think that they have a lot of optionality with the way they could defend. I do just worry, are they a little bit too slight? up front and you're not going to have Ben Simmons for what that's worth on the defensive end. They are built to play a bunch of different ways uh, offensively and through a bunch of different guys. But aside from Mikael Bridges and Spencer Dimwitty, like who is that go to? We need a bucket. How are you going to lean on them? And what happens when Mikael Bridges gets, you know, they're going to go up against, you know, if it's going to be Philly in the, in the first round, like we expect, that's just a team that feels like really large. And they have some guys in the Anthony Melton um, that can really get into uh, how Brooklyn's going to play offense. And this is also a team that's just like, they're not, I thought they'd be looked to get out and transition a little bit more, maybe based off their personnel. And they haven't yeah. done that. Yeah. Uh, and so I just, I don't view them as playoff viable. They feel like they're fun. They can be frisky and we can go through like smaller um, victories for them over the course of that series. But they just sort of feel like a stepping stone that's in self-discovery mode with regards to, you know, Nick Claxton, of course, but Mikael Bridges, even Cam Johnson, and then trying different stuff out with them. Yeah, so the Mikael Bridges thing is so fascinating to me because uh, I've long loved him as a player, and we saw in Phoenix that he was getting more burn with the ball in his hands. He was starting to create out of pick and rolls a little bit more, come off a lot of corner actions and the handoffs to attack the basket, and was a much better passer and playmaker through the first three or four months of the season than we had seen out of him before. But I had no idea he had this consistency and level of, of scoring in him. And and what what I I don't call this a worry, but what I wonder for Bridges in the long term, he's such a damn good defender and an impactful defender. Does carrying more of an offensive burden like this, even if he's capable of doing so, does that kind of zap some of his energy from being as special of a defender as he really can be? And if you're Brooklyn long-term, just how will you try to construct this roster in a way that gets the sweet spot nailed for Bridges, where he's still a really impactful offensive guy that gets those on-ball reps, but can still be that menacing defender that he loves to be. And I think it's just, you have to get someone who's probably better than Mikhail Bridges at creation and table settings that he can settle into the, to the number two spot. And then maybe to even open things up a little bit for him more like, get some actual rim pressure on the roster um, since they don't have a ton of that right now either. And so I think that would probably be the best pathway to, Hey, let's optimize him offensively without overworking him so that he can also shoulder the type of defensive workload that we need him to. 
Yeah, and as it goes to this year, I, I think the Nets can be dangerous in a best of seven series just because they're they're pretty potent offensively. They've got a ton of guys that can shoot the three point three pointer. Now they don't have that consistent rim pressure, those number one options who can get you a bucket in isolation. But man, do I worry about having to account for all of the wing shooters that they have there and the ways that they can space the floor because Nick Claxton at the five is a difficult matchup for a lot of rim prone bigs because he can move around so much, do different things on the perimeter. I just, I, and I know we're getting into a specific matchup here is how does this team, how does any team do it, but how does this team defend Joel Embiid? Right. That's, that's the big question for me. And, and look throughout the course of a seven game series, I think we've seen this with the 76ers before you have to change the looks that Embiid runs into. You can't just trap him the whole time. You can't play him in single coverage the whole time. You have to be able to give him a lot of different looks and different opportunities and options. I wonder if maybe the best course forward for the Nets would be putting Dorian Finney-Smith on him and then using Claxton more as a helper to challenge from the backside and continue to protect the basket. Because we've seen teams like the, uh, you know, other the Celtics in, in the past have always done a really good job against and that's our timer here they've always done a really good job against Joel Embiid and the Sixers and the biggest reason for that is they've said all right Joel we're going to give you a little bit of a size advantage and a mismatch inside we want you to play one-on-one and bet that if you score 40 but nobody else scores over 25 Philly's not going to have the offensive firepower to kind of beat us and I wonder if the Nets with the way that they can space the floor like you said if they can get out and transition is that going to allow them to have a similar strategy? I don't know. I'd be interested, but if you're putting taking Dorian Finney-Smith and putting him on Embiid, it's getting into the hard and Maxi matchups gets really interesting. I know you have Mikhail Bridges and Royce O'Neal, but Maxi's so fast. Him going up against Royce O'Neal isn't really like much of a comp. I guess we could say playoff James Harden might show up, and that remedies yeah. part of your issue if you're Brooklyn. <laughs> Well, look, and Cam Johnson probably has to guard Tobias Harris. Like, that's the only matchup that it seems the Sixers might have palatably for him. Maybe you can stick him on P.J. Tucker and just hope that he doesn't get outworked on the glass. Uh, But it'd be an interesting series in some regard. Our one question for the Brooklyn S was really, can they hang with the Sixers in a first-round best-of-seven series? It does seem like that's what we're going to be headed for here. How many games do you think that would go to? Do you think Brooklyn really has a shot? No, I would go, I would go, Philly's going to dump a game because it's Philly, but I would go Sixers and five. Yeah, that sounds and feels right to me, more so because Joel Embiid is a man on a mission than anything else. I think it says less about the Nets. It's less about how healthy and cohesive James Harden is come playoff time. I just think that in the first round, Joel Embiid is going to put this team on his back and make some things happen. The Achilles stuff for James Harden is definitely troublesome too. That he's just de- that he's just dealing with that is definitely yeah. something. Maybe I'm not caking in enough. I have no. I'm not a doctor. Uh, definitely can't weigh in on that one. But let's let's move on to the next team here, who's two games back from Brooklyn. It's the Miami Heat, 41 and 37. We said two games back in the Nets, but also two games up on Atlanta and Toronto in that eight nine spot, and that's really important to me. So. While they are in striking distance of the six, I think the seven is a good spot for them to be locked in at because you get two bites at the apple, so to speak. You win one game, then you're in the playoffs. You got to lose both of them in order to be knocked out. And I think that that puts Eric Spolster in the heat in a decent spot. They also have 
a solid schedule to finish. They're at Detroit tonight as we're recording here Tuesday night, then at Philly, at Washington, who was recently eliminated, and then wrapping up with the Orlando Magic, who by all accounts are going to be eliminated from postseason contention at that point. Look, I don't trust this Miami roster, but I will never, ever bet against Eric Spolstra. Where are they at on your kind of totem pole right now of the Eastern Conference teams? Are you worried about them coming into the playoffs? I am, but it feels more reputational than anything functional that we've seen this year. I mean, this team is, they're 25th in defense since the All-Star break. And that's with Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo played in basically every single game since then too. And that's on top of just, oh, they still have that really sloggy half-court offense that's been giving them issues all year. And so why do I believe in this team? It's just because of what we've seen them do in the playoffs before. Jimmy Butler, I think, if you were to frame the question this way, how many more players do you want other than Jimmy Butler in a postseason? Like maybe I think he's in the top 10 of that conversation yep. right now. Some people might even have him like in the top five or seven there. And so that helps out a ton. Um, but I just, I mean, we've seen sort of the Kevin Love experiment just fizzle out. I'm sure that's a big part of the reason why their defense is, has slid. And they're going to go up against Boston probably. And so it's just like if they, let's say they get in as the seven seed, maybe they don't. Would they rather face Milwaukee? I don't know. They kind of just feel like, yeah, they look a little intimidating at the top on paper, but we just haven't seen enough of it and it wouldn't shock me if we are like oh they're really going to give boston or milwaukee a run run for their money and then it's just oh celtics in five bucks in four or something like cutesy like that i think the unpredictability around miami makes them the ultimate like you can't be surprised no matter what happens type of team here moving forward because they could very easily push a first round series or even win one and and pull off an upset because they've got spolstra they've got bam and jimmy you could get a little bit of a playoff resurgence from a guy like a Kyle Lowry. You never know when their shooters are going to make shots. Like we've seen Tyler Hero be a really good postseason scorer in the past. But I just don't I don't trust the defense. I, I know the offense isn't isn't clicking right now. They've got a lot of dead weight on that roster who's very much, you know, they're gonna only impact the game on one end of the floor. You got your offensive guys, or you got a couple guys that are on there to defend and, and really be more athletic. And they can't strike a balance between that. The way I would frame it is they just feel like uncomfortably dependent on a Victor Oladipo needing to yeah. go boom. Or like you you need one of Max Struess or Gabe Vincent to be really good. And it's just, you know, Max Struess, the regression from him from three for a lot of this year has been disappointing as well. And so I think what might be their saving grace is when you start to dig into their lineup data, uh, a lot of their top units do have an above average like half court offensive ranking but series can be when you start to pull one of like jimmy butler or tyler hero from the equation that's when it gets really tough to prop up and in not just games but entire series can be lost in the eight nine minutes that your best player or second best player is on the bench yeah and and look i think that's only going to do them more damage to try to win a first round series if they are have to deal with the play-in because the minutes that you have to log in a winner go home scenario type of game is going to put a heavier stress on those guys while everybody else is kind of resting. So, uh, look, I, I worry about Miami. I've been worried about them all along. Every year for the last half decade, I've come in and said, ah, oh, they're seventh seed at best. And then they end up being one of the better teams in the East. This is the one year I kind of pinched myself and said, I'm never doing that again. And now they're in that seven, eight, maybe a little bit of the six six range right now in the Eastern Conference, and they just don't feel as offensively viable to to have the pieces to beat a lot of these teams. So we are 
just out of time here on the Miami section. I'm going to pause that before the, the timer goes off, but I do want to ask the one question with you here. Is their defense salvageable with any scheme or game planning that can take place in a best of seven series, or are they just kind of cooked on that end and have to rely on outscoring teams? I don't think they're cooked on that end. It's like you said, I would trust Eric Spolster to figure out something, even if it's starting to play like maybe weirdo lineups that we haven't seen enough of. And I think, look, over this past since the All-Star break, teams have been shooting like fairly hot from three, and so we know there's some luck baked into that. But like the rim protection has been fairly damning. And maybe once you pull Kevin Love from the rotation, does that change? And so, like, that's one of the the antidotes for playoff basketball. Um, but, like, are you going to be able to rebound better? We know that they can force turnovers without fouling. But their transition defense during this stretch, too, has just been all sorts of weird. And I would think that that upticks, like, that they're better at stabilizing that in the playoffs. But a lot of that is going to be, you know, what I think you're probably a believer in this, too, is the best way to get your defense set is to score on offense. And if teams no slow doubt. you down and put you in the half court – Uh, and you're not able to get points on a consistent basis, that's going to, you know, you're going to be vulnerable in spots against a team like Milwaukee, especially um, that could really hurt you. And so I don't think they're cooked because their personnel, I mean, Caleb Martin, Jimmy Butler, even Victor Oladipo, and then Bam Adebayo, of course, even I think Kyle Lowry has been better on that end, at least over his past, like, you know, whatever he's played in like seven or eight games since the all-star break that we've seen him. So like, I believe that they can ratchet it up, but that's, you know, it's different if it's, oh, against the Cavs or the Knicks. Like, to have to ratchet it up yeah. against Milwaukee or Boston is just a different beast of a task altogether. If you're Miami, is there one of those teams you'd rather see in the first round, the Celtics or the Bucks? I think I would rather face Boston because they still feel more jump shot dependent when Robert Williams III isn't on the court. And then there's just variability inherently – uh, in their offense, because if you're relying on jump shots, that becomes like very make or miss, but also they can go through these spurts where they're just committing turnovers in mass. And so I think you feel better about that. The sort of, I guess I probably fear that team more defensively than I would Milwaukee if I'm Miami. And so maybe you'd want to go against the, like you don't want to go up against Giannis, but it's Chris Middleton does not look great defensively. No. Jimmy Butler. I think he can look, he's bigger and stronger and like Drew Holiday might be able to slow him down, but like he can really go at him. And so maybe you feel a little bit better about facing Milwaukee's defense than you do Boston's defense. But I think just because there's been more variability in Boston's performance offensively, I would rather face them. Yeah. It feels like if there's one of those teams, that's going to beat themselves. It's probably going to be the Celtics and Miami with the experience and the wisdom they have on the bench can capitalize against a team like that. So As we start off this Eastern Conference playoff picture, so to speak, we've got Brooklyn, we've got Miami. Those are the two teams that are within striking distance of the sixth seed. It looks like it's Brooklyn's to lose at this point and feel pretty comfortable, maybe even after tonight, uh, circling them in as being that team. But where things start to heat up is we get into that 7 through 10 area here. Just talked about Miami, who's currently in that 7 spot. We've got a tie between Toronto and Atlanta right now, both 39 and 39. But I want to talk about the Raptors first. So because this is my podcast and I get to do what I want sometimes, we're going to start with the Raptors. They're 500. They're at Charlotte tonight. And then the schedule really picks up for them. A back-to-back in Boston, and then they finish with Milwaukee. Look, they've been so much better and more cohesive since adding Jakob Pertl. I don't trust their depth or their bench in a lot of different ways. And I think that matters in the postseason series. Scotty Barnes has been up and down in so many different ways throughout the season. 
it's hard to know what to make of this Raptors team because they don't seem like they play with the normal energy, defensive intensity, desire to get into transition the way that they have in the past that has allowed them to be successful. But we've also seen that style fizzle out a little bit in the playoffs where things slow down and be a little bit more half-court oriented. Over the last month or so, what's been your analysis of, of Toronto? I do think Jakob Pertl has helped them out a ton. And I think probably no one has benefited more than uh, Fred Van Fleet. When you look at, yeah, the shooting splits can still be a little bit all over the place, but he has someone who's going to screen and just roll. And that's worked wonders for him. Um, and I think that it's also kind of, it's changed what you need from Scotty Barnes, who's had like some really high moments since the trade deadline as well. Um, and they've been a lot better defensively uh, with Jakob Pertl there. I think yep. part of that is just they're getting better at like li- like dictating the types of shots they want opponents to take. Uh, the fact that their defense is in the top 10 despite opponents shooting over 40% from three since the All-Star break is actually a pretty big deal for them. But you already mentioned it. The thing I can't get a feel for, really, and it's nice to see Fred Van Fleet and Jakob Pertl work in the pick and roll, and it's nice to see the, the extra layers of directionality in Pascal Siakam's game um, how to streamline what you're using from Scotty Barnes. I don't know what to make of their half court offense overall. Like it's still just, you look at it on paper. It's like, yeah, that's going to be their biggest weakness. You start watching, you dig into the numbers. Guess what? That's still their, their biggest weakness, their bottom five and half court offense since the all-star break still. So I don't view them. Like they're a team that I think scares me because the top of their roster is just teaming with talent, but I don't know that we've seen it coalesce to the, even during like some of their better, peaks i don't think we've seen it coalesce enough to think hey this is a team that if they come out of the play on play uh playing excuse me they're going to be able to really give one of those top two squads a run for their money yeah so the thing with toronto is it started to gel on defense because they've gotten Pirtle. and i i'm really glad that you brought up fred van vliet because what we've actually ended up seeing on the defensive end Pirtle is like sneaky switchable in ways that i didn't think he was going to be where if he gets strung out on a guard, like he can move his feet okay and try to contest shots. It's not what the Raptors want to be doing with him, but it's mm-hmm. at least an option at the end of the clock where he's he's not exposed in some of those ways. And maybe this is just me not watching enough San Antonio Spurs film over the last two years. Uh, I don't know if you can blame me for that necessarily, but man, like he's he's really impressed me with how he moves his feet when he is dragged away from the basket. So I, I do think that they can put the clamps on people but they got to be able to score in the half court right now. And they seem and very strongly feel like they're one shooter short from that. That if, you know, Pascal Siakam can shoot, but you want the ball in his hands to be a mismatch creator, particularly if he's playing the four uh, or at the five, really, because he can mismatch in so many different ways. Scotty Barnes, not a great floor spacer right now. Fred Van Vliet, he can do it. Gary Trent, he's their only main guy right now. Like I just, I worry about them being able to, to knock down enough shots. And because they are so good in the paint defensively, they're going to encourage teams to shoot a lot of three pointers against them. I I think it's just going to turn into a shooting match that the Raptors roster just isn't really built to win when it comes down to it. Yeah. And look they're when they're like half court offense isn't humming or they're not scoring, like their transition defense has been bad Mm -hmm. uh, this year. And so like, that's going to make them vulnerable in other ways too. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Do you trust anybody on their bench and on their second unit to be a reliable force in the postseason? Like, I love fr- like flashes of Precious Achua, but I he's a, a wild stallion that you can't account for in a lot of different ways. Like, I, the point guard position has been in flux behind Van Vliet for the last two years. I just don't know what to think of of their depth. 
Yeah, I, look, Precious Achua was my most improved player pick before the season, and so that <laughs> that went up in flames pretty early on. I I don't think there is anyone after Gary Trent Jr. that we know that he's coming. There's him, and then there's there's who? Like, is it? It I would normally because I love him, Chris Boucher. Yeah. I just don't know how much you could trust him. We've seen like Jeff Doughton Jr. play some minutes. The Will Barton experiment was a disaster. Yep. I don't think we're going to see Christian Coloco or Malachi Flynn get any playoff run. Thaddeus Young is just like not even a part of the, the plan anymore. So the answer is no, it's Gary Trent Jr. But then it's just like, okay, after that, I don't, I don't have anybody. Yeah, I have no idea what to make of it. And look, like they're just so big and long and imposing on the defensive end with that starting lineup but it doesn't have enough floor spacing. And as soon as you put Gary Trent Jr. on for that, it just changes the way that they have to defend on the floor. So as we're getting a little bit farther down into this play-in race, a reminder, the race for eight is really important here. We're going to talk now about teams that are eight, nine, 10. They're all separated by a game with four to play. And Toronto, you know, I think that they have maybe the toughest schedule remaining out of any team that's vying for, for these spots. So, well, they've clinched at least being the 10th seed at the minimum. They've got a lot of games to win. And as we break down these three teams remaining, I'm just going to ask you this question for all teams, and, and we're going to take it one at a time. If Toronto ends up in that nine versus 10 game and then wins, which means they've got one game left and a loser goes home opportunity to make it into the playoffs. If you're Toronto, who would you rather face in that game? Miami, Atlanta, or Charlotte? Wait, was it Charlotte? Or excuse me, Chicago. I can't read. Um, I was like, uh, Chicago, <laughs> Chicago, Chicago. Is it? I don't. I don't. I can't say Miami. I want to say Miami, but I, yeah. I think it would be Atlanta, which is just Nikias Duncan coined this <laughs> over at uh, um, the Dunker Spot. They yep. are just aggressively mediocre, yep. and it's just the stats have just come out. Like they've been within one game of five hundred for like eight years now at this point. I think, I think it's Atlanta. That's the team that you'd want to face. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think that their length and the way that they can have different players who cut off Trey Young at the point of attack can make them really fascinating. Just in one game, you throw a bunch of different looks. You throw some Scotty, you throw some OG, you put Van Vliet on him and chase over the top. You can do a lot of different things to disrupt their offense. And I think they're probably the weakest defense of any of these teams like them in Miami. If Toronto is going to win a game, a, a one game winner go home situation, they need to find a porous uh, half court defense. So Chicago would be the worst matchup for them. I think you could make the you could make the argument for either Miami or Atlanta, but I, I think Atlanta is probably a good call. Just thinking about them having to go up against Alex Caruso, Patrick Beverly, yeah. and Io DeSunmu or Patrick Williams is just like, that's a non, that's not great. For for Toronto's offense, that's just not great. No, too many smaller guys who can undercut the, the bigs dribbles and just find ways to, to disrupt them a little bit. So, all right, Dan, speaking of the definition of mediocrity, I think we got to do our chat on the Atlanta Hawks right now. They're also 39 and 39 as we record. And they have the biggest game Tuesday night, which is again, we're recording this year Tuesday afternoon. They're playing at Chicago. If they win this game, they get two games of separation between them and the Bulls with three to play. If they lose it, they're tied. And look, they've got Washington, Philly, and then at Boston to finish. That can be a tough schedule. I think it's really going to depend on whether the Sixers or Celtics try to rest some of their main guys or how they're viewing matchups and trying to just prepare for the postseason. But 
they really need to win a couple of these games because if there's one team that I would think needs to avoid the 9-10 matchup here, it's Atlanta. And it's specifically because they are so hard to predict and mediocre and win one game, lose another, that if they kind of have to win two in a row in order to force their way into the postseason, it's going to be really tough for this team to do. Yeah, and I don't even their offense has been like statistically thermonuclear since the all-star break. And yet I just don't trust it. And it's like, you know, you're not they can put some pressure on the rim, but they're not particularly efficient once they get there. They're way and I guess you look at the roster and and this does make sense, but they're way more dependent on second chance opportunities than I would think. They're very mid-range heavy. Their threes are falling at this point. And then yet if you look at just like their most important lineup, it's been dominant for most of this season. And I know it can't play 48 minutes every single game, but you look at those five players and it's, Oh, like there really might be something there. And maybe there's some added wrinkles by that point. I mean, you know, because of Quinn Snyder having more familiarity right. with the roster, who knows? Uh, and we've seen what Trey young can do in certain postseason series. We've also seen him struggle in certain postseason series yeah. and him being smaller and given again, just their shot profile, which has changed. I think since Snyder, I didn't uh, look at that specifically. Um, I just, I, I don't need, I don't want to say that I think that they're just bad and done. I don't think I understand them fully, which is a yeah. problem when we're like 78 games into the season. How the hell are you supposed to understand them? Like they've made changes at the deadline. They've tinkered with their ring, wing rotation on and off all year. They've been shopping John Collins since I was in baby clothes. And like Quinn Snyder has been there for all of a month and a half now. So it's really hard to know how much of what they're doing on the floor is his influence is him just trying to keep continuity and, and bridge the gap, wait till he has a full off season and training camp to put things in really hard to know how much they're doing on the fly. And, and that bipolar nature with so many questions in the air just makes it hard to predictably find you know, what exactly they're going to give us as we move into the postseason. Where are you at with the Quinn Snyder experiment? Do you think it's been positive? Will it be a positive for the Hawks long-term? What do you think of the fit with him and Trey? I think it'll end up being positive long-term, but I do think in the early aughts, we've kind of seen like, Hey, they're way more bench dependent. You like, you look at a lot of their, I just mentioned their top units have fared so well. Like a lot of it's been their bench guys or like their bench units have been sort of killer. And so like, yeah, you're staggering. So there's some, I guess, positivity there, but I don't know that we've seen like the, you know, the five most important players really meld the way, or even the six most important players, if you're not right or seven and throw Bogdan Bogdanovich and Onyeka Kungu in there. Um, so I think it ends up being, I liked the hire from their perspective. I did not understand it from Quinn Snyder's. I'm assuming he just has like the utmost authority on personnel decisions. Otherwise I would have taken my talents into uh, coaching free agency this summer to see what other jobs became available. You know, it's, it's so interesting because if I'm Quinn, I know that I need star players to, to coach in order to, to do anything in the postseason, And I don't know if there are going to be many jobs that open that have guys like Trey Young and DeJounte Murray on their roster, but the fit around them still is a little bit strange to me. They got a lot of bigger wings and then they've committed to having John Collins on this roster year after year to be like anchored into this four man role without ever really utilizing him to the best of his ability. So it's, it's been a strange fit roster wise. And I don't know if Snyder is the type of guy that utilizes John Collins more in like different screening actions. He seems to be more of a true four around one coach. And maybe that's just how we've pegged him after watching the Utah jazz play for so many years, but really fascinating team here. Hard to predict in a lot of different ways. I like the, the bench and depth talent that they have. I've turned into an AJ Griffin fan this year. 
I think he's been really solid and steady for them as a rookie. I've always liked Sadiq Bey. I thought that was a shrewd acquisition. And Yeka Okongwu can be a starting center for them moving forward if, if that's something that they decide they need to do. But the pieces haven't really fit or blended together. And it's really hard to know at this time of year if that's due to the fit that they all have and it's, it's so hard to make them work. Is it because Quinn Snyder isn't the right coach to make all those pieces work and they need to have some changes this summer? Or is it just because he hasn't had the time and opportunity to put all of that in this year? So, Dan, that said, I'm going to frame the exact same question to you here. Atlanta ends up in that 9 or 10 game, and they win the first one. They've got one more game, win, and they are in the postseason. Who would you face if you're Atlanta? Who would you want to see in that 7-8 matchup drop down? Is it Miami, Toronto, or Chicago? I think it's probably Toronto just because you need a prayer of being able to defend. And I think Toronto's offense is most likely to self-sabotage and self-destruct than any, than, than the other two. I know the bulls have just been mid on offense all year, but you have Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan. Uh, So, and then in Miami, it's just, yeah, I think statistically their offense has been worse than Toronto's in a lot of respects, but you have Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero. And it's like, if those guys are going to play, there's a pathway to, that half court offense being trustworthy, if not really good for protracted pockets of time. I don't have that same faith in, in Toronto. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. They're huge. And so like Trey Young huge. might be eclipsed, but I, I need to just go with the team that I trust the least on offense. I think because Atlanta's defense yeah. has been that bad. Yeah. See, I, I go with Miami. If I'm Atlanta, that's the team that I would want to see, because I think that there are few, there are fewer options to throw at Trey Young in a, in a one-game series, essentially, that there's a little bit less length. There might be some quicker guys, like Gabe Vincent can do a decent job at the point of attack. You can be physical with a guy like Oladipo or maybe Lowry for a bit of time. But I think on the perimeter, Atlanta's going to have a pretty large advantage. And they're a team, because they've been so blistering on the offensive end of the floor, I think they just need to outscore somebody. And Miami does have that same similarly – half-court challenged offense in some regard with fewer options to try to disrupt Trey at the point of attack. So if I'm Atlanta, I'd kind of be playing, uh, you know, hoping that we would get Miami in that game to, to force our way into the postseason. Now it could end up being a moot point, right? They are a game back from essentially being in that seven, eight matchup. And if they end up getting there, all they got to do is win one game and they're, they are in as the seven seed. So that would be fantastic for Atlanta what a weird team. What a weird season. Uh, just hasn't always meshed with Young and DeJounte in the way that we'd hoped. One of but, the most fascinating teams of the offseason, for sure. Not, yeah. I know we're not talking about that, but that's the team that I'm just going to be locked in on. Yeah, like them and Minnesota, those two teams that made a ton of huge moves this year, and like it hasn't necessarily looked great, and they're just so bogged down on those rosters as a result. I, I want to see how creative their front offices can get to try to fix this and make this work a little bit more cleanly because they pushed a lot of chips in betting that they'd be really, really good. And they are very firmly mediocre, both teams. I refuse to formulate any more opinions on the Timberwolves because as soon as I have one, they just, they ruin it. I could yeah. be, it could be me having a positive opinion and then I need to walk it back. Me admitting I'm wrong only for them to prove me right. But then I'm wrong because I said I was wrong. It's just, They've been an acid trip all year, yeah. including at this very moment. You're a smarter man than I for for uh, refraining from doing so. But, Dan, uh, we got one last team that I want to kind of go on here. 
And it's Los Bulls, the Chicago Bulls, 38 and 40. So as we're recording this, a game back from Toronto and Atlanta, it's very plausible they can end up tied with them by the time this podcast gets released because they've got a head-to-head with Atlanta tonight. And if the Raptors drop their game, then my goodness, we got a three-way tie there at the seventh seed. Chicago's nine and four in their last 13. In that span, they've beaten the Grizzlies, the Lakers, the 76ers, and the Nuggets. After this game tonight with the Hawks, they go at Milwaukee, at Dallas, and finish up with a cushy one at home against the Detroit Pistons. A decent schedule for them here. Dallas will be an interesting one to see how scratching and clawing the Mavericks are to try to find their way into the play-in picture. Look, they've been small, right? They've started Pat Beverly, Alex Caruso, and Zach Levine together in the backcourt. But that can be a little stylistically imposing because of how much ball pressure they put on guys. Pat Williams has been pretty good in this bench role. The defense has been super strong and super active. Have you liked what you've seen from the Chicago Bulls over the last two months? Yeah, it's all like they almost want to make you believe in them, even though that you know that you shouldn't. (laughs) And they're kind of the perfect example of rim protection can start and end on the perimeter because like that's really how they've done their job of protecting the rim uh, because they have all those, you know, the smaller guys that you mentioned, they're able to get into the ball. They're able to derail possessions, get under guys. And it's just, it's worked. It's just, it's just, it's worked. They have, they're, they're the best team in the league since the all-star break at keeping teams out of transition. They're not even like particularly awesome uh, as this like, you know, defensive rebounding team either. And so they're just doing a lot of their work during these live ball possessions and you watch them and you could feel it. Their offense still kind of doesn't make sense, but then it's like, well, you have Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan being otherworldly shot makers still. And even Vooch, you know, not really doing as much damage as a jump shooter, but still been solid for them on that end of the floor as well. It makes me wonder if they're just like, I did bold predictions for Bleacher Report like a week or two ago. And I predicted that the Bulls would make the playoffs. I think I ended up, it was just going to be Miami and Chicago be the teams to win the play-in and I don't know if I'm ready to walk that back just like I don't trust the Bulls but they're just like they've been you mentioned nine and four in their last 13 like it maybe stuff is like really starting to to come together for them and that lineup you mentioned like with Patrick Beverly and they're outscoring opponents by 16 points per 100 possessions it's just they found something and over the course of playoff series no you don't trust it but in you know having to win one two games in a row to get into the playoffs why not Well, I love that you mentioned their perimeter defense helping out Vucevic and really preventing them from giving up rim attempts. Like I think of rim deterrence as a key buzzword that we hear in the NBA a lot. And no one is seen as a bigger rim deterrent than Rudy Gobert. He stands near the basket and no one wants to challenge him. I think a better rim deterrent is not letting people get to the rim. Like they don't even dribble close enough to get there and get those shots off. And that's what this backcourt defensively has gotten to. You've got two MFers in Caruso and Pat Beverly, and then a third a little bit in Ayo Desunmu when he comes off the bench. You've got two great scorers in guys like Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan who can win their one-on-one matchup and score from all three levels. You've got a guy in Vooch who is still guarded on the perimeter like he's going to be a threat from opposing bigs. There's a lot that this Bulls team can kind of do to, to mismatch you in some regards but they are a little bit smaller, particularly with that starting unit. It's worked. I don't want to jinx it, but I do think there are some matchups that could be really tough for them if they were to end up being in a, hey, we got to earn our way into the postseason type of situation right here. I got to ask you this, though, 
because this is this is what's been on my mind a lot for the Chicago Bulls. What does their season look like if Lonzo Ball is healthy? I mean, they were the best team in the East when he went down last year, essentially, right? So I'm not saying that would have been their ceiling with how Milwaukee figured itself out after Middleton and knowing Boston and Philly exist. But And there are some things that might not have broke right for them right now. I mean, if Lonzo Ball is here, do we see what we've seen from Kobe White lately? That's been big. Do they even go out and get Patrick Beverly? Still, Lonzo Ball is just like the perfect, and this is a cliche, it's just the perfect two-way connective tissue, not just for this team, but for any team. His three-point volume, which is one of the biggest things that they lack, and efficiency, like that immediately plugs in and helps without compromising what you do on defense right now. And so it's only this enhancer. He probably helps them out, quite frankly. He probably helped them out a lot, rebounding-wise, as well. And I think he would... I think you would add a little bit more diversity to their offense. Not when we're talking about in the slow half court situations, but if you want to look to, to push ahead in transition, like that's not necessarily like a DeMar DeRozan thing. You have DeRozan and Zach Levine and, and even Vooch who's shooting like a trillion percent on hook shots this year. Like they can anchor your half court. And, you know, I don't think it's fair for the bulls to frame it. Like, well, if we just had Lonzo, like this yeah. is the reality now is we don't know if he's going to play again, but there is sort of that whimsical and it's, it's bittersweet of, like if they just had Lonzo, I know. how could this team be like, no, um, they'd probably be top six in the East, but could they be like top four? Could they be better than the Cavs or the Knicks? Right. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't either. And the reason I bring that up is not to just lament how much I miss Lonzo ball because I, I absolutely love him and adore him as a player, but it's because I think that Patrick Beverly is functioning in Chicago as like Costco Kirkland brand Lonzo ball right now. Like, <laughs> He's a little bit smaller, but he provides a lot of that defensive energy. He can guard a little bit up the lineup as opposed to just being able to to guard opposing point guards because he is so strong and smart. And he does want to push tempo. He does want to just always have that go-go mentality that fits so well with this Bulls roster. So that leads me to believe if this was a team that was so good when Lonzo was here because of the way they were constructed and could have a real identity – is this kind of a, a real flash that we're seeing over the last 13 games? It could translate into almost 20 games heading into the playoffs. This is a legitimately dangerous team. And like you said at the very top of this, you never want to trust the Bulls. And they barely shoot three-pointers. They don't have a ton of floor spacing. But I low-key kind of like this group right now. So I'll ask you that same question we've been dealing with for the last couple teams here. If they're in the 9-10 game and they end up winning, They've got to win one more to make it into the playoffs. If you're the Bulls, do you want Miami, Atlanta, or Toronto in that game? I think it's Atlanta because you're kind of built to just absolutely neutralize their offense. When you look at the smaller dudes, you yeah. could throw on DeJounte Murray and, and Trey Young. And then, like, look, if we're trying to think of all the bigs that they could be playing, who do you want going up against Vooch? And it would be, I'd rather Vooch have to deal with defending either John Collins or Clint Capella than Siakam or Jakob Pertl or Scotty Barnes, uh, or let alone, he's not a good touch bam out of bio in that. Yeah, like they're yeah. going to do all sorts of things to hide him there. So I think that it's pretty easily Atlanta. Is it easily, is it an easy answer? Or is there a case be made that it should be one of the other teams? It's an easy one for me there. And to me, it's almost as much about because they're smaller and they play DeRozan at the four, you want to dare John Collins to try to beat you. Like if I'm, if I'm playing the Atlanta Hawks, I'm saying, all right, Trey, Will you get the ball out of your hands and will you finally trust John Collins to be somebody who can create and do things? Because we've not seen that before. We'll blitz you. We'll throw a lot of different plays at you. 
let's see if John Collins can beat us in one game. And if he can't, great. Then you, you go home and you end your season. But that's what I would do if I were Billy Donovan. Yeah, I'd be with you. And that's even if, like, are the Hawks, but, like, they're probably playing Sadiq Bay over John Collins in a lot of, like, those situations. Like, if Chicago's running DeRozan at the four would be my yeah. guess. I don't know. Yeah, they might be able to force the the Hawks to match up to them a little bit. So really fascinating order right here. I'm going to just ask you rapid fire, Dan, how do you see the six through 10 race shaping up in the East when all is said and done, who ends up in what spot? I think so. I think Brooklyn's going to hold on to six just because they're two ahead in the loss column right now. And Miami has not looked great since the all-star break. I will have Miami in at seven because they have another two game lead. I'll go with here. I'm going to say, the Bulls get eight, and we'll ha- I'm going to have the Raptors stick at nine and the Hawks fall to ten. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. So I'm with you on six and seven. I've got Brooklyn at six. I've got Miami at seven. I think that Atlanta actually holds on to eight. That with the way that the schedule kind of breaks for them, I have them at eight, Toronto nine, and Chicago ten. It essentially, and I don't have any of this up with me. I don't know if you know any of the math on the tiebreakers between those three teams, but I would not be surprised if we end up with all of them with the same record, if they're all 41 and 41 and it ends up splitting hairs, kind of eight, nine and 10. Yeah. And I mean, like the, I wonder if sort of the eight spot might be determined in that Chicago with Atlanta game that is going to take place on the night that we're actually recording this. And right, (laughs) and right now Chicago owns that tiebreaker. Uh, they're two to one over Atlanta on the season. So if they're three to one and they win this over the Hawks, like that might just be game over bulls or bulls or eight in that scenario. Okay. Well then I can't pick Atlanta to go in that eight. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to go exactly what you said there. I'm going to go with Miami seven, Chicago, eight, Toronto, nine, Atlanta, 10. That's how I'm going to have it shaken out. Now, who do you think are the two teams in that last four who end up making it to the postseason? I think it. I'll stick with Chicago and Miami, and I want to know your answer. But I would like to throw a question at you, even though it's your podcast. Sure, I'm how, good with that. How big of how big of a disaster is it if Miami doesn't get in to the playoffs? Yeah, I think it's. I think it's always a disaster when Pat Riley's your boss and you don't end up making the postseason. Like that's that's a, a wrath I never want to feel personally. But I think it's it's going to allow them or it would force them to look at this roster a little bit more objectively. They're really old. They don't have a ton of two-way players. And what they have banked on over the last several years are bargain bin shopping, whether it's in the summer or the mid-season acquisition pocket around the trade deadline, of guys who are a little bit older retreads who have something to approve and are just veteran presences. That's the Victor Oladipo's, the the Kevin loves going all in for Kyle Lowry. Like they're either really old in that regard and don't have the same juice or they're really, really young. So it would just force them to eliminate the run it back option. And I don't think that that's a terrible thing, but it, they're going to be pretty cap straddled and, and they don't have a ton of future assets to be able to move some of those guys around and just reshape this roster on the fly. So yeah, it would probably be a pretty big disaster. Like, it's probably a bigger, bigger disaster than any of the other teams if they miss the playoffs. Yeah, just because I mean, like you're going through it, and it's but when you look at the games that Tyler Hero, Bam Adebayo, and Jimmy Butler specifically have played in, there's nothing that stands out like, oh wow, these guys missed so many games. You know, Jimmy missing about twenty, Hero missing eighteen, Bam, I think ten or whatever. Yeah. it'll end up being. It's just like, all right, that's you kind of just pencil that in every season anyway. Yeah. So, I I mean, look, I think Chicago is going to be one of the four teams 
who makes it out into the playoffs. They're just really intriguing to me right now in the way that they've been playing since the All-Star break. I have no idea what to make of the other three because I don't trust any of them, uh, particularly in a, a you know a game a, a situation where they have to win two games in a row in order to make it. I have no idea who I would trust out of that group. But I do have a bonus question for you, Dan, if you're all right with it. I'm ready. If you are the Milwaukee Bucks, of those bottom four teams that we just talked about, Miami, Atlanta, Toronto, and Chicago, who would you least want to face in the first round? I feel like – is it? I think it's Toronto. It, I, maybe it should be Miami just because of Bam and Jimmy, but they just feel so broken. The Heat do, and so I think Milwaukee's half court offense has been since Chris uh, since Chris Middleton came back the second time has been obliterating opponents. I think they were second in half court offense since the All Star break, or they've dropped to, after that shellacking at the hands of the Celtics. They dropped to sixth, but like it still feels that they can be a little slower on the wings. Middleton hasn't looked right on defense, and that there is some room for drop off in the half court if they're going to go up against a bunch of size and teams that are going to look to force turnovers. And that would definitely be a, a Toronto, even Chicago. I don't think would be like, could be a sneaky hard matchup for them, but I think it's, I don't think I'd want to face Toronto the most. If I'm Milwaukee, that's my final answer. Yeah. I, I think I lean Toronto. I thought Chicago a little bit earlier, but I, I'm definitely leaning Toronto now just because of the multiple bodies and length that they have to throw at guys like Giannis and Middleton. And outside of those two, like Drew Holiday's had an unbelievable season, but in the best of seven series, if he's going to be the leading scorer five times out of seven, I think that's pretty good odds for a team like uh, like Toronto. So I'm with you there. Same question for the Celtics. If you're Boston, who would you want to see the least in that 2-7 matchup? I think I'd want to see Miami the least. Mm-hmm. That feels like a team that could, you know, assuming that they don't forever suck on defense now, like between <laughs> Bam and Jimmy – uh, even Victor Oladipo, like that would be, and even what Kyle Lowry can do, like they have a lot of different ways that they can um, hassle you on defense, especially if you're going to be so, like if you're so jump shot dependent, you're playing right into the hands of like Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler and how this yeah. team is going to ultimately defend. And so I think it's them. Um, maybe the actual right answer should be like Chicago or even Toronto, but I, I think it's, I feel like I'm giving Miami too much credit and not enough at the same time. I'm going to go with Miami. Though. That's the story of the season for the heat though. Like we're all expecting them to raise their level of play as things got to move forward. And we just, we haven't seen it. Like I tend to think Toronto is another tough one because again, the, the Celtics are built on wing play and they're very jump shot heavy. Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, three guys that you can stick on the Tatum Brown combination and really try to irritate them and hold up well in those one-on-one situations. I know the Celtics are very jump shot heavy, but I think the way to beat them is to just make Tatum and Brown's life a living hell and bank on your kind of length athleticism and rebounding to be able to take care of the rest when everybody else is shooting or Malcolm Brogdon is ISO backing down guys to the post and trying to bully his way to the bucket. That's a great point too. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's funny because we go through this exercise. Chicago's the hottest team. Toronto is the team that I think Milwaukee or Boston would want to face the least. Miami has the best coach and quite possibly two of the biggest stars of any of the teams that we're talking about here with Bam and Jimmy Butler. And then there's the nuclear offense that the Atlanta Hawks might be able to bring if they can finally get those pieces to click at the right time. So it's not going to be a cakewalk in the first round for either Boston or Milwaukee. 
in my frame of mind, unless Atlanta kind of makes it through. But there's still a, a lot to play for here. Uh, I, I think that these teams are, are going to be scrappy in a first round series. Yeah, I'd be with. I think Atlanta of the four teams we talked about probably intimidates me the most. If I'm just the top of the East, or whether I'm if I have to go through the play-in, like I don't mind having to go through Atlanta. I don't yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear you there, Dan. I love chatting with you, man. It's always good to do this pod and and, and link up again here. Let the people know what do you have going on, what work is in the future for you. The floor is yours, my friend. Yes, uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Dan Favale. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. That's where I put out all my work. Uh, that's from Bleach Report. Going to be publishing a lot during the playoffs. And also, if you like general NBA talk such as this, uh, that does not take itself too seriously, check out the Hardwood Knox podcast, spelled exactly as it sounds. It's on YouTube, wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Dan, I got to say, I love your shirt today. Yes, represent CC basketball, she wrote. Shout out Caitlin Cooper. Uh, keep it locked on the box and one for a lot more NBA draft content coming soon. Just released a mock draft here at the conclusion of the college basketball season. We've got our scouting reports coming out on individual prospects, mainly first round guys right now. And the playoffs are starting in a week. So probably a little bit more NBA basketball being sprinkled in there, but the play in has added a huge new dynamic and element to the playoff chase over the last few years. I think this year it has been really fun in the West, albeit a little bit depressing because of some of the teams that are are in there and we had hoped would be a little bit higher. But in the Eastern Conference, don't sleep on it either. There's a lot of drama that can unfold here over the final week with three teams separated essentially by a game and a couple of them that might be sneaky, hard teams to face in the first round. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.